0: Thank you guys for your help. Um, before we get started today, uh, as I was talking with Bill, our senior pastor, uh, throughout the week and uh, just doing some planning for the service here, uh, he said that he would be listening to us over the internet. So we're going to test him out here. Okay? When I count to three, I want everyone to say, hey, Bill. Okay, you got to say it loud so the microphones can pick you up so he could hear you, but we're going to say this, and uh, hopefully on Monday or Tuesday when I see him next, he'll say something about it, so we'll actually, we're going to test him out and see if he does that. okay? So, Hey Bill on three, ready? One, two, three. Hey, hey! Oh! All right, we're going to see if that actually works. <laughs> Keep an eye on Facebook, and I'll, uh... I will update you on the progress. Um, If you came in late, my name is Jared Simmon, and I'm the director of student ministries here at Pittman Park. I'm in charge of 6th through 12th graders, and uh, thank you guys for helping out during the service. Um, This past week, we had Youth Week, and it was action-packed, fun-filled stuff. Um, just to give you a recap, Monday we had Mission Monday, which if you were over in the Fellowship Hall lobby and you got a cup of coffee, you saw the corner desk that's there, got recovered. Thank you, Mr. Pryor, for your uh, your help and your supervision through doing that. Um, it's still a work in progress. We're going to paint it and all, but uh, that's what we did on Monday. Um, on Tuesday, we had the Messy Olympics, which included a lot of shaving cream um, throwing goldfish at each other and my personal favorite redneck paintball, which is where you soak marshmallows in catch and chocolate and strawberry service, stir up and you throw it at each other. Um, so super duper fun Wednesday. We went to a Braves game. Um, it was an amazing experience except for the Braves lost 10 to four. And I think it was literally 135 degrees at the game. Uh, it was, it was a little bit toasty, uh, Thursday, we went to Savannah and did a scavenger hunt, which the high school group ended up winning that. And then after that, we went to see How to Train Your Dragon 2. Uh, big fan of that movie, so give me a reason to go see it. Um, and then Friday, we ended the week with a lock-in. So if I just look like a zombie, it's because I feel like one right now. Still trying to recoup from Friday night. But um, most everyone knows Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Uh, it's about a younger son who twists his father's arm uh, for his share of the property. And he goes off and he spins it all. And he comes home in just utter disgrace. Then, to his astonishment, he finds his father running down the road to meet him and throwing a huge party in his honor. He's welcomed back as a son, even though he doesn't deserve it. That's amazing grace. Now, let's flash forward a year or two in this story. And let's imagine the prodigal son's life. Life is settled down into this humdrum existence. His older brother tolerates him more or less. Uh, his father's getting older. He remembers fondly the happy day he came home and his father came running to greet him. And he thinks, suppose I did it again. Why not help myself to enough things for me to go away for a couple weeks. And then when I come back, I'll play the penitent and come back again. Maybe I'll get another party. Now, if I said that you guys right now are thinking, what in the world was this dude thinking? That's just absurd, but it's exactly what a great many people think. It's exactly what a great many Christians do. Let's keep sinning so that God can keep forgiving. God will forgive me. That's his job. That's a lot of our thought process. And a great many people today seem to believe that the only word the church should say to anyone is the message of forgiveness. Some people only hear half of the gospel. They come to church. They go through a starting points class. If you're coming up through sixth grade, uh, you go through a confirmation class. And they believe that God offers grace. And they live a very different life away from church. It doesn't matter uh, how you live on Monday through Saturday, just as long as you come to church on Sunday and you get your weekly dose of grace. Now there's another story in the Bible that shows the fullness of the gospel. And it's in the book of John in chapter 8, and it, it's a story of a woman who had been caught committing adultery. The Pharisees and the scribes, they're ready to stone her. And then they ask for Jesus's opinion. And Jesus says, Let the one who is without sin... Cast the first stone. And when he says that, the entire crowd leaves. And Jesus says to the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one has condemned me. And then what does Jesus say? He actually says two things, but a lot of us only look at one of the things he says. The first thing that we really focus on is he said, neither do I condemn you. That's grace. And grace is what we emphasize in our time But Jesus also said, go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Both were very important to Jesus. The grace of compassion and the commitment of discipleship. The person who follows Christ lives differently than they did before. Now this has been an issue for Christians for a very, very long time. If salvation is God's free gift, If salvation is entirely of God, if salvation is by grace alone, does that mean it doesn't matter what I do? Okay, the formula might go something like this. If grace is a good thing and grace increases to cover our sin, then why not keep on sinning so that we might receive more grace? you, You guys follow me on that? All right. The argument springs from the great saying at the end of chapter five in Romans where sin abounded, grace super abounded. So Paul is saying something like this. You have just said that God's grace is great enough to provide forgiveness for every sin. Well, if that's so, let us go on sinning. The more we sin, the more grace will abound. So sin does not matter for God will forgive anyway. So in fact, we could actually take a step further further than that and say that sin is an excellent thing because it gives grace it gives the grace of God a chance to operate so the conclusion of our new argument here is that sin produces grace therefore sin is bound to be a good thing if it produces the greatest thing in the world did I just blow anybody's mind okay okay It's okay. What I said was completely wrong. Okay? Paul reacts very strongly in this. When it says, should we keep on sinning so that forgiveness can happen? He says, I should hope not. In other translations, it says, God forbid. Now, my wife, Megan, is a fourth grade language arts teacher. And one thing that she stresses is punctuation. You know, put your pauses at the commas and... Read what the sentence is supposed to be, whether just a sentence or a question. But this one right here, when it says, I should hope not, or God forbid, there's an exclamation point behind that. So a lot of times, especially whenever I read the Bible, I I just read through it real fast. Uh, I I hope some of you guys are like that because I I don't want to be singled out. But, um, But we need to emphasize the exclamation points. Paul says, God forbid. Should we keep on sinning so grace can happen? I should hope not. That's his his inflection that he's talking about. So how can we, who died to sin, go on living in it? The Christian life is a new life. We're committed to a different kind of life. We have died to one kind of life and been born into another. Eugene Peterson, who is the author of the Message Translation, which Kate read for us today, said it this way. He said, we left the old country of sin behind. We entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. Now, we as people, we separate forgiveness and grace from discipleship. But there's a balance of these in the book of Romans. There's an acknowledgement that we all sin in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's a recognition that grace does abound, as in Romans chapters 4 and 5. But there's also an acknowledgement that we are now called to live differently, as we heard here in Romans 6. And then later in Romans 8, we're given the power to live differently. So sin no longer has power over us. We are dead to sin. Our, our theme verse for this past Youth Week, the theme was Nova Creatura, which actually is Latin for new creation. So our theme verse was 2 Corinthians 5.17. And it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. What, a, what an amazing verse. The new creation has come, the old is go- gone, the new is here. Now, we're still tempted, of course. We're still tempted to worship the gods of success and prestige and money. We're still tempted to take what doesn't belong to us. We're still tempted to cheat and spread rumors. We're still tempted to lie, to save face. We're still tempted, but we don't have to go in. We are not bound to a certain behavior. Paul's point is that we are dead to sin and alive to God. In verses 3 and 4, he illustrates this truth with the symbolism of baptism. Paul's irregular argument goes something like this. As Christ people, we identify with Christ. In particular, identify closely with Christ's death and resurrection. So like Jesus, as Christians, we have died to an old life and have been raised to a new life. So even the symbolism of, of immersion baptism illustrates this truth we go under the water identifying with christ's death and when we come out of the water we're identifying with christ's resurrection so paul's point once again we have died to sin and we are alive to god in verses five to ten of our passage paul moves away from the symbolism of baptism to make his point in more direct terms And if you look at it, it's really not an easy passage to follow. But Paul essentially says, we identify with Christ in his death and his resurrection. We identify with Christ in his death, which means we die to our past life, which includes sin. We identify with Christ in his resurrection, which means that we are raised to a new life. Now, at first glance, we may think that this idea of identification with Christ is is foreign, foreign to our experience as Christians, but actually identifying with something or someone is a very common experience in our life. Many of us identify with sports teams at one stripe or another. My wife hates college football season because when Saturday rolls around, I don't get anything done. Um, I identify with Georgia Southern football, and I also, I'm going to say this very reluctantly because I don't know how many people will take this. But I grew up an Auburn fan. Yeah, ooh, oh, no. I'm going to quickly get through with this sermon and be done. Um, now I grew up an Auburn fan. That's where my family went. So I grew up saying, weagle, weagle. Um, and actually, the words roll tide were taught to me to be a cuss word when I was growing up. That was, that was, two, that was two four-letter words you did not say in our household. I remember being very young and... Uh, one of my dad's friends came up to me. It was in church. It was in the hallway. On the other end of the hallway, he said, hey, Jared, roll tide. And I was, I was five years old. And I remember looking at my dad saying, who uses language like that in church? <laughs> so I, I, I identify with Auburn football and GSU. Um, especially now, I identify with the U.S. Men's national soccer team who's playing in the World Cup. We got a win against Ghana. Uh, last Monday night, and then actually today's game day as well. We play Portugal at 6 o'clock. If we get a win, we move out of the group stage. We go to the knockout round of 16, which is a big deal because the group we're in is called the group of death with Germany and Portugal and Ghana. And um, so I I know I'm going on a rant, but I'm trying to tell you I love U.S. soccer. Um, USA all the way. So, But sometimes you hear people say, he lives and dies with the U.S. soccer team. Or or whatever team it is that you identify with. And that's an interesting expression considering today's scripture. That expression means that we identify with our teams. We're up when they're up. We're down when they're down. Which for a lot of us, for whatever team it is, it seems like we're down more than we are up. Um, We rejoice when they rejoice. Now, others may not identify, uh, at least as strongly as I do, with sports teams. uh, But we usually identify with something some identify with tv shows Uh, people follow uh, some shows every week and identify with those characters people identify with uh, maybe their scottish or irish heritage deep american roots Um, some historic places Um, other persons identify with people who are prominent uh, in their own occupation the list just goes on and on but paul calls the christian to identify closely with jesus christ When it comes to Jesus, we can't fail to pay attention. We can't be casual in our approach. The Christian disciple will want to fully identify with Jesus, to live and die with Jesus. Now, Paul concludes in verse 11 by saying, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead and alive. Well that will mean for each of us it is going to vary from person to person. It may mean new standards of honesty in the workplace, standing up for those who aren't able to, recognizing that we've been worrying far too much, or maybe that we need to stop nursing our anger for another, or that we need to stop misappropriating others' resources or stop an inappropriate relationship. Here's a radical thought. That's so often ignored in church today. Sin no longer has power over the believer. Sin no longer has power over the believer. There's a call to commitment in our passage. There are decisions to be made. Be assured though, in these rich chapters of Romans that we are promised the power of the Holy Spirit to live the way God calls us to live. We come into God's presence and honestly tell God the changes we want to make in our life and ask God for God, ask God for his power to fill us and strengthen us. We rely on God's Spirit working within us. Now, I've been a youth minister for seven years now. I'm actually about to start my eighth year in youth ministry, and I've been to Many, 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 many youth camps. And one thing that just gets under my skin is when the speaker for the camp gets up and he says, I want you guys to come in here and I want you guys to worship the Lord. That's great. Okay. We're doing fine. But then he says something like this. I just want you to leave your junk outside and you come in here and you worship God. You know what? That's not good. That's not good enough. Because you know what happens when you get through worshiping God in here and you go back outside? Your junk's still out there. So bring your junk inside. Put it right here at this altar. Maybe you don't feel comfortable up here and you feel more comfortable in the pew. Or maybe there's a picnic table by some pond that you love to go to. Or a rocking chair on your front porch. Or maybe somebody's got a favorite lazy boy recliner that they like to sit in. But we have to have a place to where we can go and honestly tell God the changes we want to make in our lives and ask him for his power to fill us and to strengthen us. Um, On Wednesday night Bible study this past semester, we went through a study called manna and mercy. And in that study, we learned just a brief history of the story of how the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and God heard them crying in the misery of slavery and oppression and God sent Moses to bring them out in a way to freedom in the promised land. They came through the Red Sea, leaving behind the lab- land of slavery and discovering this new freedom. God led them to Mount Sinai where they were given the law. They then spent a long time wandering around the wilderness and grumbling against God. And they, even, they even created a golden calf to worship. But God continued to lead them by his own presence in the pillar of cloud and fire, until eventually they entered the land they had been given as an inheritance. The story is, is very well known. It's, it's in the book of Exodus, if you want to go read it. But what's not normally recognized is that here in Romans, the Apostle Paul tells a version of the very same story. Starting with this present passage. Romans 6 describes how Christians come through the water of baptism like the Red Sea, and thus leave behind the land of slavery and enter into this new freedom, like leaving Egypt and setting off for the Promised Land. Romans 7 wrestles with the question of what happened at Mount Sinai and the problems that resulted, leading to a new fulfillment of the law. And then Romans 8 describes the Christian life in terms of God leading the people home to their inheritance, which turns out to be the whole redeemed creation. And the Apostle Paul warns against precisely the kind of grumbling of which the Israelites had been guilty. So we are free from sin through the power of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. We have the ability to leave the past behind us and become a new creation in Jesus Christ. As the version of the scripture we read earlier says, we left the old country of sin behind and we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land, a new life in a new land. Let's pray. Our most gracious and heavenly father, we pray that you would help us to be able to make the commitment to follow you today. Help us to leave our, our life of sin behind and enter into the everlasting life that you offer everyone. In your most precious holy name, amen.